You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Everyone is on a journey, and uh, we're going to start this morning on this journey through the book of Exodus, and I apologize, I have a head cold, Uh, I think I got it from the baby, your baby, Uh, I held her all Sunday, Sunday night, all Monday, she's so sweet, but she makes me sick, Um, every time she gets something, she gives it to me. Anyway, take your copy of God's Word. Go with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus, and let me tell you what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to give you an overview. If I could get you all here on a Wednesday night, I'd do this on a Wednesday night, but you won't all come on a Wednesday night. So I've got to take this morning, I'm going to give you a great overview of the book of Exodus, and then we will pick up and start digging into it next week. Exodus is literally a continuation of the book of Genesis. Now, just look at this. Uh, Look at the beginning here of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, do this. Put your finger there. I'm going to use a lot of Scripture this morning. Go back to Genesis, chapter 46. Uh, Just a few pages back, Genesis, chapter 46, verse 8 says this. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. So, do you see the connection There's a connection there. Um, The two are connected together. If Genesis is the front door to the mansion of God with 66 rooms, 66 books, then Exodus is the red carpeted hallway that connects every single one of the rooms. You will discover as you go through the rest of Exodus that Exodus goes through the rest of Scripture. It is hard for me, or it would be hard for me, to overemphasize the book of Exodus. It is critical. It is almost as if Exodus happens to be uh, the glasses of redemption through which you see the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, it, It is also hard to believe that the Jews could know the Exodus so well. And they knew the book of they knew the first five books of Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They knew uh, the Torah, uh, the first five books of Moses, the books of the law. They knew that. It's hard to believe that they knew Exodus so well, but never saw Jesus Christ in it. It's hard for me to believe that they were not waiting on that night when Christ was born and understood this is exactly what God said was going to happen back in the book of Exodus. Now, let me show you something here. When you come to the end of Genesis, and I'm going to deal with the end of Genesis for a few minutes, do you see all of this blank space? That's 400 years. 400 years between this 
and the next page. Um, Exodus, 400 years pass, which is an amazing thing to me because you get to the end of Malachi and uh, before you get to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, you've got 400 years as well. And in both situations, the people of God are in a terrible situation, desperately in need of a Savior. When you come to the end of Genesis, they are in uh, Egyptian slavery. Bondage is where uh, they end up through that 400 years. And uh, you come to the end of Malachi, and you're going to discover, you, you know, Alexander's, uh, all, 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 the Seleucids, one of the generals that came out from Alexander the Great, is going to seize that part of Syria, uh, Lebanon, that we know as Lebanon, Syria, down through Israel. And the Seleucids are going to dominate the Hebrews. And then the, the, I started to say the Russians are going to come in. Uh, the Romans are going uh, to come in. It's really the mafia is going to come in. Uh, you invite the Romans in, they never leave. You don't ever get rid of them. The Romans come in, they dominate Israel. So in both situations, the people of God, the Jews, are dominated by these external powers, and they're in a difficult situation, and God comes on both situations to deliver them. In Exodus chapter 2, he, he, comes, he, sends a, he sends a deliverer, and in Matthew chapter 2, he sends a deliverer, and he does it the exact same way. In Exodus chapter 2, a baby cries, and in Matthew chapter 2, a baby cries. You see, God, listen, let me let, let, me let you in on something. God doesn't need battalions to conquer the world. He can do it with a baby. He can give you a cold by one too. In both situations, a deliverer comes and they both come in the form of a baby. So watch how all of this begins. It, 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 you come to the end of Genesis and uh, you're going to read that Joseph is going to die. He states that. It's interesting to me. I've not thought about this before. Um, the last day or two, but Joseph is the first of all of these brothers to die. First one to die. I don't know why that is. He just is. It seems like it would be poetic justice that the others all die first, but Joseph is the first to die. Um, Matt, uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. Now watch this. In fact, he does die. Uh, verse 26, so Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now you come to Exodus chapter 1 and you read this. Uh, verse 6, Joseph died. So the way Genesis ends is the way Exodus begins. So again, you've got this connection between the two. Uh, the two are connected together. Exodus just carries on the narrative that we get into in the book of Genesis. Joseph dies, but before he dies, look at what he does. I'm in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 24. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you. He wants them to know that. He wants them to know that God's going to care for them and watch it what he does. He says, he's going to bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to our great-grandfather Abraham to our grandfather Isaac, and to our daddy Jacob. Now, what he's doing is this. He's going back to the covenant God made in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Just go back there. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3. God speaks to Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abram, 
He says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Now watch, he's going to start laying out what he's going to give to him. To the land which I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You will become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And the final deals literally with the fact that through Abraham and down through all of these descendants is going to come one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, and that's the Messiah. So now here is the Abrahamic covenant right here. And in this covenant, God promises these things to Abraham. And Joseph comes at the end of Genesis and says, our God keeps his promises. Now Abraham is dead, Isaac is dead, Jacob is dead. Now Joseph is dying and he comes and he remember he he reminds these brothers, let me tell you something, we don't own that land as of yet, but I am telling you this God is going to keep faith with his promise and he's going to take care of you and he's going to bring you up from this land to that land which he promised. On oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I'll just give you this on a sidelight. You don't have to be alive for God to keep his promise. God never told Abraham, I'll do it in your day. Nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor Joseph, nor any of these others. He says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And he says, through you, all the families on earth are going to be blessed because a Messiah is going to come out of you as a people. And so God promises them that, and I can tell you this, you may depart this life, but if God has made a promise to your heart and to your life, God will keep that promise. You don't have to be alive for God to honor his promises. Now, Joseph comes to him and he says, one more time, listen, God's going to surely take care of you. In fact, he makes them swear this. God will take care of you. So I'm going I'm to do the same thing. I want you to know this. I want you to say this with me. God will take care of us. Now say it. Swear to the Lord. God will take care of us. Period. You can count on it. You can trust it. That God's going to care for you. And he tells these brothers, that's what I want you to swear, saying God will surely take care of you guys. And listen, you shall carry my bones up from here. Joseph dies. They bury him, but they never, or well, they put him in a coffin. They never bury his body. They don't bury his body. Uh, in fact, they leave it out there as a memorial that all the Hebrews for the next 400 years are going to look at this, this coffin that is out there, and they're going to say, what is that thing over there? And uh, these daddies will tell their boys, well, that's the coffin of Joseph. Well, what is it doing out here? Why don't they bury that thing? Why don't, why don't they put it away somewhere? Because God's going to take care of us. He's coming to get us, and he's going to take us from this place over to that promised place that he has prepared for us. So we will go up from here, and so will the bones of Joseph. Now, now let me just ask you something. Is this beginning to sound like anything to you? And the Lord shall descend with a shout and the voice of the archangel and trump of God and the dead in Christ. We, those old bones are going to get up. Now, I'm going to tell you this week, that means something to me. 
It means something to me that he's not going to leave us in a grave, in a coffin, in the ground somewhere. But those bones will get up and they will go over from this land to that place that he has promised us. And those that are alive and remain, we will be caught up together with them in the air and we will meet the Lord and thus we shall ever be. Y'all tell I'm excited this morning because that means something to my heart today. I've been reminded of it in a way I've not been reminded in some years. I've been reminded of that. We'll not lay there in the ground for all of eternity. We've got a land we're going to. The Father waits over there. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we shall see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. So he comes and he tells them, you you remember this, God's coming for you. He's going to pick you up and take you from here over there. You get my bones. And does it happen? Joshua, chapter 24, you read these words in verse 32. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem. And the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's son. They did it. It happened. Exodus chapter 1. Here's the connection now between all of this. And you say, well, how did they wind up down there in Egypt to begin with? Well, let me give you a story. And the story is this. There was a boy that was born to a family. A son that was born to a family. And that family, those brothers, that kin rejected him. They didn't like him. And I'll tell you why they didn't like him. They didn't like him for several reasons. Number one, the father favored him. The father had him as a favored son and dressed him in a special coat. And not only that, this boy would tell all the others, you will all one day bow down to me. Now, they didn't like that. You wouldn't have liked it. I would not have liked it. They did not like it, and they hated him because of it. But he came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected him. And so there that boy went down to see these brothers, and he had to bring a bad report back to the father about them. So the next time they saw him, they took him. They stripped his clothes off of him. And his brother by the name of Judah, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, Judas, Judas, sold him for the price of a slave. And they thought he had gone off now into death. He goes down into Egypt, into the pit in the ground, and there he stays in the pit of the ground until the father calls him out. And the father calls him out and places him at the right hand of the king of the then known world. And there he rules everything from the right hand of Pharaoh. And this Hebrew in the land of the Gentile pagans becomes the bread of life. Until his brothers get hungry. 
And those brothers come down to Egypt. And do you know what they do? They get on their knees before this man who rules. And they confess him as Lord. That's the drama of redemption. That is the book of Exodus. Now let me show you a couple of things. Number one, I want you to know in Exodus, you're going to, you're going to encounter the sovereignty of God. Now when you come to the book of Exodus, who do we normally think about? Moses. We normally think of Moses, but I want to share with you that when we come to the book of Exodus, you need to understand it's not about Moses. It's not about the Hebrews. It's not about the Egyptians. It's about God. It is a constant revelation of God over and over and over again. God is revealing himself, and he's revealing himself in an incredible way. In fact, let me just give you, you, you even see it in the way the entire book breaks down. There are just three movements to the entire book of Exodus. Let me give them to you. From chapter 1 through chapter 18, what you have got is you have the God who delivers. From chapter 19 through chapter 24, you have got the demands of God, the God who demands, the God who delivers, the God who demands. And from chapter 25 to the end of the book, which is chapter 40, what you have got is you have got the God who dwells, the God who delivers, who demands. Now, let me just stop and ask you that. Why aren't those reversed? Why isn't it the God who demands and then the God who delivers? Because if God came and gave you his demands up front, you would spend the rest of your life, like most people are trying to do today, trying to do everything they can to deliver themselves. And the fact of the matter is, you can't deliver yourself. So God has to come even while you are yet a sinner. And before he places a single demand on your life, he says, you've got to be saved. You've got to be delivered. And then once you are delivered, God comes and he says, now here is my law. And the only way you can keep that law is that he's already delivered you, set up residence in you so that his strength enables you to keep his demands. Did y'all get all that? That's pretty good, wasn't it? I just came up with that off the top of my head. Listen, somebody write that down. I might want to use that later on. So there you go. Now God begins to reveal himself. Now watch that. He's going to reveal himself as what he is. He is a holy God. Chapter 3. Let me just give you a few of these and then I'll get to the other two points. Number one, uh, he, is, he is a God who is holy. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Moses is on the backside of the desert now. He's over 40. He's between 41 and 80 years of age. Uh, probably closer to his 80th birthday than his 41st. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. What are we told about God in Scripture? He is a consuming fire. Go read the first chapter of Revelation and take a look at the resurrected Christ. It speaks of the holiness of God. Fire represents the holiness of God. That's why God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, get your shoes off because where you're standing is holy ground. I'm here. 
You're in my presence now. And so you see the holiness of God there. The second thing you're going to see in this same chapter is that God is a God of compassion. Look down at verse 7. He tells Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. In other words, God says, you never hurt that I don't see it. I'm a God of not only holiness, but I'm a God of great compassion. I know what you're going through. I know what your hurts are. I know what your struggles are. I know what your difficulty is. I'm aware of it, and the reason I am here is because I'm a God of compassion, and I'm going to do something about it. And what God is eventually going to do is he's going to demonstrate his power. That's the third thing. Look at chapter 6 and verse 6. God comes and says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel that I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now just, just watch this. Count these I wills right here. He's already given you one. I will bring you out from under the burdens. Uh, number two, I will deliver you up from bondage. Number three, I will also redeem you with outstretched arms and with great judgments. Verse seven, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up from under the bondage uh, or, or, or the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you. And why do you have all these I wills and can I count on that? Yes, I can because he closes that little section with these words. I'm the Lord. I'm God. This is going to happen. I'll bring it about because I've got the power to do it. He's not only the God of power, he's the God of protection. Look on over to chapter 14. These uh, Hebrews get out of Egypt as they come out of Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea, and they are standing there at the Red Sea, and they look back, and here comes the Egyptian army. Pharaoh, who has been on and off and on and off and on and off and on and off, who has changed his mind, changed his mind, changed his mind, decides now I'm going to go and get them. I'm going to go get them. I'm going to go get them, and I'm going to drag them back here, and I'm going to make them pay for all of this. And now they see the Egyptians coming, and they see the sea in front of them. In chapter 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Verse 14 Mine and Debbie's verse right here. She came in five years ago and gave this verse to me and told me the Lord will fight for you while you just sit there and be quiet. And she was right. And it's a great word from God. And it's great to experience that together as a couple. And then the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Go forward. But wait a minute, wait a minute, Lord. The sea hadn't opened up. Let me, let me just let you in on something, folks. Catch these things as, as you do. God tells them to move forward before he ever opens the sea. Well, I'm just going to have to wait and see if God will do that. I'll just have to wait and see. Well, you're going to be waiting until Jesus comes back because God expects you to trust him. You move forward. And when you step out on faith, let me tell you something. God will do what God has said he will do. I will be the God who will bring you protection. Number five, I'm going to give you provision. Oh, this is so good. Chapter 16, 
They come out now, uh, really chapter 15 and 16, they come out of uh, the land of Israel. They get uh, uh, of, of Egypt headed to the land of Israel. They make it across the sea. They're out in the wilderness of uh, the desert for three days. There is no water. And so they come to Mara and they could not drink. Chapter 15, verse 23 they couldn't drink the waters of Mara. They were bitter. And it was named Mara, which means bitterness. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what are we going to do now? And the Lord, and then he cried. Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. God provides them water. He says, I'm, I'm the God's going to make provision. I'm not just going to protect you and get you out here to die. I'm going to make provision. Here comes the provision right here. He gives them water to drink. Verse 27, they came to Elam uh, where there were 12 springs of water in 70 days. He puts them in Honolulu. They got all the water. They, they got all these palm trees. They got all these date trees, and they're just sitting out. I've been, I have literally been to the area of Mara, and there are all of these deep dug, just in the sand, these deep wells. And you, and listen, I stood there and counted them. There's 70 palm trees there. Are y'all awake this morning? Well, there they are. God says, I'll, I'll meet you neat. Well, they get hungry. And so God comes in chapter 16 and he says to Moses, Behold, I'll rain bread from heaven. I'll send, listen, Publix will be dropping all your groceries at your front door from above. And so they do that. So they get bread. And do you know what they do next? They turn around and they say, well, hey, the, the bread's great, but we'd, love, we'd like a little bit of meat to go with this. And so what does he do? He sends in all of these quail. Verse 13, chapter 16, it came about at evening that quails came up. Now, I don't have really any hobbies. I study. I, don't, I, I read. I, that's, I don't do much. But there is one thing I do love to do because my dad would take me to do it. I do love quail hunting. And I not only like to hunt quail, I love to eat it. And my favorite meal is fried quail, grits, milk gravy, and biscuits. That's what they had. They, ha they had, to me, the best meal they could possibly have. They got biscuit and quail. And listen to what this says right here. It says this, it says, when the dew came, there was this layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was this fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, just like frost on the ground. That fine frosting that goes on a Krispy Kreme donut, right? At, their, at the doorway of every tent every morning, Krispy Kreme. They just didn't know what to call it. Verse 16, the sons of Israel saw it and they said to one another, what is it? They didn't know. It was Krispy Kreme. They've got bread. They've got quail. They've got Krispy Kreme manna from God. God says, I'm going to take care of you. What did Joseph tell them? God will take care of you. Then came the glory of God. You see the glory of God all over this. Move on over to chapter 33. Get over that way where, where Moses is going to ask to see the presence of God. 
And in chapter 34, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities and transgression and sin, and will yet by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Listen, right there is the glory of God as God passes by. He, he announces, he declares, he preaches, he heralds. This is who I am. I'm compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's the glory of God. And there is the majesty of God in all of this. Moses says to God, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make myself and my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by and I'll move my hand and you can see the back of me, but my face no man can see and live. That's the majesty of God. The whole of the book of Exodus is about this sovereign God who constantly we encounter in page after page after page. Now, let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this. In Exodus, we will experience the redemption that will come in the Messiah. The whole of Exodus is a picture of the redemption of God in Jesus Christ. It's all about the mission of Christ. It just lays it out. In fact, let me take you now through some of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2, I want you to listen to this. In verse 15, he says, he remained there, that is the Christ child, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. You realize that Jesus came out of Egypt? Just like the ancient Hebrews came out of Egypt, Jesus Christ came out of Egypt. He came out, and as they came out, they went through the Red Sea and the baptism of Moses. As Jesus came out of Egypt, listen, what he's going to do is he's going down to the Jordan River, will be baptized by John. He will pass through the waters of baptism. Let me tell you something. Don't blow off baptism. It becomes a major identification mark of who you are and whose you are. And Jesus walks through the waters of baptism. And just like the ancient Hebrews who were baptized in Moses, he was baptized. Listen, they went immediately out into the wilderness. Jesus, we're told by Mark, was driven out into the wilderness. They go out in 40 years. He goes out for 40 days. They get into the wilderness, and they are hungry and thirsty. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. He's hungry and thirsty. They're in the wilderness being tested and tempted. He's in the wilderness being tested and tempted. And they eventually now come to Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, and there Moses will go up and will bring down the law. Jesus comes out of that wilderness, and in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he goes up on the mountainside, and there he gives the law. You have heard it said, 
but I say to you. It's all about Jesus. People ask all the time the question I will get, especially from other pastors and from uh, those who teach in seminaries and colleges, and they'll ask me, honestly, are, are you not pushing that a little much? Is this not uh, the tendency for allegory? I said, well, Jesus never thought so. Because when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him the question, or, or when Jesus responded to the Pharisees, and he said, you, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life. It is these that testify of me. Let me tell you something. Every verse in the Old Testament may not be directly uh, related in some way to Jesus Christ's redemption, but I can tell you this, every single verse is pointing to it. The Old Testament, every verse points to a Messiah is coming, a Savior is coming. The New Testament testifies every verse, a Savior came and he's coming again. Jiminy Cricket, amen? Well, here we go. What were we doing? Here we are. Listen, listen, to, listen, listen to the next thing. There, there's Christ. You see him there. Uh, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing that even Jesus' half-brother, Jude, you remember we went through the little book of Jude? Let me, let me show you what Jude says. Jude was the son of Joseph and Mary. Jesus was the son of Mary and the son of God. He was not the son of Joseph or, no, or, or any man, but Jude writes of his elder, older, half-brother these words. Jude, the only chapter, verse 4. Jude writes and he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only... Now watch this. Look at the name here. Look at the title here. Our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now there's my immediate context because now he's going to speak about that uh, Lord in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things for once for all, that the Lord... Now who is the Lord there? Jesus, by the way, I'll just let you in on a little bit of textual criticism. There are two very old manuscripts that instead of Lord here, they have the name Jesus. So we know who he's talking about. And he says this, the Lord, or if you appeal to the earlier manuscripts, Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. Who always does the saving, folks? <laughs> Jesus. Who always sends the Savior? The Father. Jesus is the one who does the saving because the Father sends him. Listen. It's all about Jesus Christ. Look at the last chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 24. When these two men are on the road to Emmaus, and you probably know where I'm going with this. Uh, they're discussing how disappointed and discouraged and upset they are that Jesus was crucified. They put so much hope in him. 
And then they talk about how the women went to the tomb and they could not find him there. It was empty. They don't know what's going on. And so a third man comes up on the road to Emmaus and he said to them in the middle of the conversation, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but uh, him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to me that it says that beginning with Moses. doesn't say beginning with Abraham. doesn't say beginning with Adam. He could have started with Adam. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say starting with Abraham or starting with Isaac or starting with Jacob or starting with Joseph. It says starting with Moses. He starts with Moses and with all the prophets. He explained them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus went up on a high mountain in Luke chapter 9. We know it as the Mount of Transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John with him. He went up there, and he begins to pray to the Father. And while he's praying, I want you to listen to what the Word of God says. Something happens. Something begins to transform. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. I'm in Luke chapter 9, verse 29. His face became different. His clothes became white and just burst forth with light. They were gleaming, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. So Peter, James, and John get to listen in on a conversation. We catch just a, a, a bit of it. They get to listen in to the whole conversation as Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. And what they're talking to Jesus about here is this appearing in glory, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What are they talking about? The crucifixion and the resurrection. Moses and Elijah are appearing there in glory, speaking to Jesus about his departure. Do you see the word departure there? You know what the word is in Greek? Exodos. It's our word exodus, to depart, to exit, to leave. Isn't it interesting? Moses and Elijah, they're not there talking about his getting away or his escaping. They're talking to him about his exodus. Now, Moses may have been an expert on exodus, but who was leading the whole thing? Jesus Christ. He's the cloud. The Old Testament speaks of him as the angel of God in the cloud or the angel of the Lord in the cloud. He was the one who was going before them. He was the one who was guarding them. He was the one who was protecting them. He is the Passover lamb. The heart of Exodus is around the Passover lamb. It's no wonder that Jesus was sacrificed or crucified at Passover. At the time of the Passover lamb on that Friday afternoon around 3 o'clock, they would sacrifice the Passover lamb the time that Jesus Christ died. Precisely on that day, precisely at that time, 
Because God had told those Hebrews down in Egypt, you do this, tonight death will be visited on Egypt. And death will come to every home that's not covered under the blood. He told them, you take a lamb, you take a yearling, and you sacrifice that lamb, you catch the blood, you roast the meat, and you eat it so you'll have strength to get out because they're going to send you out tonight. And he says, but you take that blood and you paint it up one side of the door, over the top, and down the other side of the door. And when I pass over, I will see the sign of the blood of the lamb, and there will be life, but where there is no blood, there is death. Jiminy Cricket. He says this. You take the weakest thing you can find. Get a lamb. Take its life. End its life. Get its blood. That's why Paul comes in 1 Corinthians and he says that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. The most unthinkable thing, weakest thing you could possibly imagine. How will a lamb save us? He did. The lamb of God. As John said, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there you go. You, you, you see, you just constantly see this all the way through. Man, I could take you through 1 Corinthians. I could take you back through Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 6. All of this. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. Our fathers all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses' cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock. Now look at this. I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at this. He says they all drank from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. What comes from water? Life. What sustains life? Water. He is quoting what the rabbis taught because the rabbis taught that when Moses brought water out of that rock, which we know it was God that did that, but when Moses brought water out of the rock, the rabbis taught that rock rolled around behind the nation of Israel so that when they got thirsty, they would go back to the rock and they would get a drink. But as it rolled behind them, Paul comes to say, let me tell you who the rock was that gave life. It was Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the last thing, and the last thing is this, is you're going to, through all of this, you're going to have an explanation of God's purpose. What is God's purpose in all of this? What, what, what was God's purpose in all uh, of this? You say, well, to get the Hebrews out of, out of Egypt. No, not, it, sure, that was some of his will, but that's not what the major purpose is here. You say, well, to get sinners, it's a picture of sinners Egypt is known as the house of bondage, the house of sin, to get them out of the bondage to sin and over to where God wanted them. Well, that was God's plan, sure, but that's not the whole purpose here. You got a lot of God's plan here, but what was the purpose? What is the reason God went in there and he saved them out of that bondage? He said, well, he, he did that to save them. That's good, and yes, he certainly did that, but that's not the purpose. Exodus 25, one short sentence, and you're going to see the purpose of what God is doing. In Exodus chapter 25, 
Are you ready for this? Now, here's the whole theme of the book. Verse 8. Let them construct the sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Now, let that sink in for just a minute. Why did God save you? Well, it wasn't just to get you out of hell. And it wasn't just to get you into heaven. Numbers chapter 2, God comes and he tells Moses, you put three, three tribes to the east of the tent of meeting of the tabernacle. By the way, you're going to read tabernacle and tent of meeting constantly, back and forth, back and forth. Tabernacle is the dwelling place. Tent is where I live. He goes back and forth, dwelling place where I live, dwelling place where I live. He says, you put three tribes to the east, three to the south, three to the west, three to the north. And you put the tabernacle where I dwell, right in the midst of the people there. John gets this. In John chapter 1, in verse 14, when he says, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt. Do you know what the word dwelt is? Skeno. Skeno. Tabernacle. John said, and the word became flesh and tabernacle. I'm, I'm hoping you're thinking about this and you're catching this because this is the purpose of God. God, listen to me, God loves you so much. He just wants to live with you. A God who can do all the things that he does in Exodus with all the power that he has, as great and sovereign as he is, God comes in one simple little verse and he says, oh, shucks, I just want to live with them. I just want to be with them. I want to be in their midst and in their life and in their home and in their family and in their every day. I want to live with them. That's why God saved you. That's why Jesus died for you. It's certainly not because we just love him to death. Oh, how we fail and fail and fail. But God, who never fails, says, I want to live with you. So that it moves from going to that tabernacle where he dwelt to becoming the tabernacle where he dwells. Let's stand. Does he live in your life? Is he at home in your home? Is he at home in your heart? Does he dwell? Is his residence? Is his tabernacle? Is his tent your life? 
your mind, your thoughts, your soul, your spirit, does he live there with you? If you're here this morning and you can't honestly say, I'm not sure about that. You've never trusted him as Lord and Savior, I can tell you no. He wants to, but Jesus Christ is too much of a gentleman to shove his way into your life. He waits to be invited. Have you invited him in? Have you invited him into your life? Not just your problems, but into your heart. Not just your struggles and difficulties, but into the center of you. Here is a God who loves you that much that the reason he saves you is that he might dwell in you. If you've never come to the place in your life where you've trusted in him, trust in Jesus today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Put your faith in him now. Call out to him in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Be Lord of my life. Be Lord of my future. Live in my life. And help me, O Lord, to live my life for you. And if you prayed that, you need to come and you need to make that public. I'm going to be standing here at the front just to give you that opportunity. Others of you need to come and join the church. You need to put your life in the life of this congregation. You need a place where you can live out the life of Christ. Father, I pray that in these moments, do what only you can do. Draw as only you can draw. Be that great God of salvation to those who desperately need it. And Father, we wait in prayer before you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Would you come right now? Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.